Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tyson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado, Denver, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Carrie Figdor, Robert Talese, and Alexis McLeod. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with John T. Lysaker, who is the William R. Cannon Professor of Philosophy at Emory University. His book, Philosophy Writing and the Character of Thought, is just out from the University of Chicago Press. What is the relationship between the form of writing and what could be thought? How is a writer's thinking shaped by form? How is a reader's? Does this matter for philosophy? In Philosophy, Writing, and the Character of Thought, John T. Lysaker explores the importance of the praxis of writing for philosophy. Essaying a variety of forms, the book invites the reader to investigate the volume in their hands as a performance. It engages with, among others, the work of Plato, Emerson, Wittgenstein, Benjamin, and Cavell, not only to show how form matters for thought, but also how thought is always made possible by what has come before. The book argues for philosophy to reconsider academic articles as the dominant mode of writing in the profession and offers an example of the creative ways in which philosophy can unfold. Uh, Hello, John, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks so much for the uh, excellent questions you sent me. Oh, well, it was a pleasure to read your book, and I'm really looking forward to talking about it with you today. would you tell me? Would you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a philosopher, and then how you came to write this book? Sure. So uh, I'd always had general interests in the humanities: um, poems, paintings, music, films, questions of the good life, the human condition. Uh, but I also always thought those things needed to be brought into conversation with critics and theorists sort of somewhere in between uh, the poet and Plato. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, neither of them are sufficient, but they're, they're actually in a joint project. And so eventually uh, philosophy seemed to me to be best able to kind of have those conversations the way I wanted to. Uh, my goal wasn't to be a master of some particular author, um, but to sort of think with them about whatever was at stake there. So I went to Kenyon College. I had a great philosophy professor, Juan de Pasquale, and that sort of, uh, I was hooked. You know, mm. 18, I was hooked. That was it. <laughs> um, then I went to graduate school uh, at Vanderbilt, and I had a very good pluralist education. Um, and I think the rough sort of distinctions between analytic pragmatism, continental, and then some subsections like ordinary language philosophy or deconstruction those are useful um, because they have their own sets of concerns and habits of thought. Uh, but what's not useful is to think that one of them is the only way to go. Um, and so the real task is to kind of become your own through inheriting and seeing how they contest one another. Uh, and so that's sort of my general background. I'm a pluralist and a humanist. Um, and in terms of this book in particular, uh, that's a, 
it's <laughs> such an unusual book. I mean, th- that could eat up a ton of time. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's sort of, to be short about it, some of the things have to do with the books I'd written before. Um, my first two books, um, You Must Change Your Life and Emerson and Self-Culture, somewhat like narratives they start with a question they venture a reply and then the narrative is let's see how well that reply fares and how it develops over time and in each of them i sort of put a central wrecking point where my reply needed to really change if it was going to be credible uh and i always had sort of that kind of rhetorical ambition in my writing then in after emerson i decided that's a little too neat I feel like I need to come at things uh, in a more um, cubistic way from a variety of angles. And so after Emerson is a collection of essays, they're somewhat freestanding, but they clearly interanimate one another. They have similar questions. They use similar phrases, some of which are tied to Emerson, some aren't. And my goal there was to develop, for lack of a better language, a moral vocabulary, a vocabulary you could live with. Um, but not by securing ahead of time uh, its validity. That would be, right, Kant to me would be the archetypical philosopher who through critique tries to secure ahead of time the validity of whatever he wants to bring to a certain domain of being, uh, scientific knowledge, moral life, aesthetic, teleological judgment. And I wanted through the essays to write in a way where a kind of vocabulary would seem legitimate because the people who read it thought I could see myself talking that way. And they were persuaded by the power of that vocabulary uh, as used in my essays. Um, But then finally, uh, it struck me that maybe essays were collages of shorter thoughts. Um, And I wanted to then experiment in one way by just allowing a real collage of shorter thoughts to still interact with one another but to have more of a kind of pungency of a short thought uh, than even an essay allows. So that's sort of one line. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the other line quickly is, this is a weird way uh, for me to talk about one way to think about first philosophy. Um, because whenever one starts to philosophize, usually something like writing is going to be taking place. So I really wanted to encounter at a a deep level, what am I doing when I write philosophy? What am I offering others? What am I engaging with? How does my thought unfold there? And rather than rush off to the subject matter and declare my theses about it and defeat my enemies, that whole scene of speaking to another about a state of affairs uh, through concepts which aren't really empirical. You know, I'm not a scientist. I'm not giving theories which are trying to be adequate descriptions of or predictions of phenomena. I'm really giving someone a, a mode of speech which they may or may not adopt, but that's hopefully the goal. So in a way, uh, Hegel asks the question of the thinkable, and he goes to logic. And for me, the thinkable is tied to the writable, uh, and so I went to the question of writing um, as an actual activity that one would have to think through in order to be a philosopher. Um, so there's a kind of just my ongoing experimentation as a writer that led to this book. And then there's also a very basic metaphilosophical question 
which is what are we doing when we produce words and send them off to another? Yeah, and it seems like those concerns begin even with your dedication, which is for you and me. That's how you sort of begin the book with the dedication. And then immediately it's followed by an epigraph from Emerson, um, which is, it is a mischievous notion that we are come late into nature, that the world was finished a long time ago. Uh, And so given what you've just said, it seems like those are excellent setups for the book you wanted to write, but will you just talk a little bit about how you chose that dedication, that epigraph, and and do you see them as sort of a condensed version of your book in a way? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's a it's a neat uh, insight of yours that they are. I hadn't thought about them that way. Condensed versions of the book. Um, this is sort of when you write something that's not a clearly synthetic whole. You nevertheless hope the whole resonates at various points. Mm. I'm not a enough of a romantic to think that you can get the whole out of every part. That's sort of a strange dream I call the view from everywhere rather than the view from nowhere. Um, but I do think it should resonate um, and you should be gesturing toward what you're trying to accomplish. The For uh, you and me, that idea is in part, I want the book to have a kind of intimacy. I want it to feel intimate to read, but I also want to address people at a level which isn't reducible to their being a professional philosopher or whatever role it is that led them to this book. Um, that's one of my concerns that I just think uh, philosophy has become so professionalized that it's become what Stanley Fish accuses it of being, which is the formalized language game with a set of scripted moves that has no bearing outside of itself. To the degree that's true, that's a social fact. That's not uh, an inevitable discursive fact. So there is a way in which uh there should be a me there in the writing and a you and the reader should have some sense that some kind of meeting is taking place. But that intimacy is built around a kind of existential grammar. Um, You know, that's why the book meditates so much on things like what is, who is the you? What are the possible ways in which you could be heard? Who am I if my thought is always in the company of others that me then So sometimes in the book, I'd use the phrase, you and me in the company of us. And that's a sort of phrase that is trying to capture for me the differentiated sociality of writing. Um, That there are these distinct persons and then this larger collectivity in which they uh, can be located, but um, uh, those persons aren't reducible to that collectivity. So both this intimacy and this kind of existential grammar, and that's kind of the existential grammar is part of the pluralism I was talking about before. That means I might want to talk about Buber or Wittgenstein or Habermas or Judith Butler, you know, who's ever managed to say something that really struck me on that. My having been struck by them, I want to be part of that conversation. So you and me to just get a sense of something more than just the usual professional fare is happening. And for the Emerson line, he has revelation in mind, that revelation isn't over. Um, And this got him in a lot of trouble in the Divinity School address where he's basically saying we could all be partial incarnations of the divine if we're honest and courageous enough. Um, My point is less bold. 
It's just that philosophy isn't over. The ways in which it will present itself, uh, those haven't been exhausted. And I, uh, you know, believe that to be the case. Um, it kind of echoes something I used to start my After Emerson book, uh, which was something from Nietzsche, which says something similar, which is just, you know, this should be experimental. Something unsought for should occur, and we should then try to be true to it as it unfolds. Uh, and don't don't be a conformist. You're selling out if you if you are. So part of the spirit of the book, part of the tone of the book, and part of the thematics of the book are all caught up uh, for me in um, the dedication and the epigraph. Yeah, and you're, and that's brings me, I think, to the form which of the book, which I think bears out that the experimental nature that seeing what happens if you try something and and follow it through that seems like very much drives the form of the book and that you're um you're open throughout the book about that there's a self-consciousness isn't quite the word or or it's i don't mean it pejoratively there's a self-consciousness or an awareness of the experiment of the book um and the form is clearly unfolding um in light of that experiment and one of the ways i saw this was in um in your use of paragraphs, you would often give what I thought of as a title to the paragraph or a bolded uh-huh. opening statement to the paragraph. Um, and then, and this is in sections that sometimes are as short as a page. They're not really, I don't know if you thought about them as chapters. I thought about them as sections. Um, so there's a lot of information in highly condensed. Sometimes you're actually writing an aphorism and then sometimes you're writing about aphorism Um, But then there's a lot of, you're giving your reader a lot in a short space, um, even when you're not writing aphoristically, I suppose Mm -hmm. is how you say that. Um, And so how did you come to that? How did you come to that kind of highly condensed way of writing this book? Yeah, you know, I I really uh, like and appreciate uh, this question. It's incredibly thoughtful um, about how the paragraph or, you know, a a relatively short segment of thought is kind of the pulse of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And so sometimes that ends up being fairly short and can be more aphoristic, but those are the exception. Um, uh, It's really the unit of thought in a sense is something like the paragraph. And I've mulled over this idea for a long, long time. um, Just what is the proper unit of thought? It actually first dawned on me when I was asked to teach a critical thinking class as a graduate student. And I thought, well, when thought is critical, right, what are we thinking about and what form does the criticism take? And is it the single concept, nature, justice, truth, uh, being? Is it the proposition, uh, A and B, uh, S is P, if P, then Q? Or is it some longer unit of thought? And I'd already read enough Hegel to know that he thinks the true is the whole, but I've never believed that the whole can be rendered imminent to thought. So that sort of backed me back up to some sense that some much shorter unit of thought is something like the pulse of thought. That's the the mm-hmm. form in which thought uh, occurs. Some people think about the pulse of consciousness like James thinks about this or Damasio and 
you know, maybe it's 30 seconds. Um, and I, I think about thinking uh, in this way. And so there is a kind of mimetic goal in the book that it is capturing, imaging thought and its occurrence, but philosophical thought. So thought that it is interrogating itself. Um, and there is that sense of self-consciousness uh, in the book. For me, I sometimes think about it as conscientiousness, like mm. I'm trying to be a conscientious uh, writer. Um, and I, I, I see why you pulled back a little from self-conscious because that sometimes is self-dramatizing. Uh, yeah, no, I think conscientiousness is a uh, is more accurate to what I I got from the book. Yeah, that's that's definitely what. And so, I, part of the being conscientious is also being honest. I wanted to develop a thought uh, where I thought, "Wow, there's still some energy here. This is an exciting thought. It's addressing something. It's being provocative. Uh, it's giving someone something to wrestle with." Um, but I didn't want to belabor it after there wasn't much more for me to add, either by putting it in a massive scholarly apparatus or by trying to de defeat all enemies. You know, I wanted each of the sections to kind of have that sort of buoyancy. Um, and I do think if you read uh, Emerson's essays or Adorno's essays, they're often collections of paragraphs. Um, they don't really come together as a rhetorical whole. They do up to a point, and that gets super tricky then, how you're supposed to read parts and holes. Um, but for this, this was uh, this book was really trying to be true to thought and its occurrence, to have that kind of um, mimetic feel, but not in a way that's impressionistic or simply self-asserting. You know, people talk about phenomenology this way sometimes. They say, I'm going to give you a phenomenology of something, and all they mean is, I'm going to tell you what it's like to be me. <laughs> And I don't think that's a phenomenology. That's just the first person report. Um, a phenomenology is trying to find out of our experiences something kind of eidetic, something uh, more of a pattern, something more generalizable, something that's not merely idiosyncratic. And so part of the task of this book was to be true to thought in its pulse uh, while not just here are some ideas I had, you know, on the way to work. Um, so they, I wanted them to be worked on and, and really to offer someone something that was worth them considering either to accept, to modify or reject, but to feel smarter for having thought through why they rejected it. So that I, there's two phrases from what you just said that really jumped out at me um, in relationship to, the theme of deliberate writing in the book, mm -hmm. um, which is a section title, but then I also thought was a recurring theme. Um, and you talked about thought interrogating itself and being true to thought and its pulse. Um, and it seems to me like this is what deliberate writing is, is connected to is trying to, is trying to think through thought or trying to be true to thought and its pulse. Um, is that right? Is my impression right that that's what deliberate writing is aiming at? Um, and could you talk a little bit about what deliberate writing is? Yeah, I do think it is aiming that uh, aiming at something like that. And um, yeah, deliberate writing was one of the potential titles for the book or writing ah, deliberately. Okay. Uh, and, you know, part of the more punk-like ambition of that phrase is to suggest that sometimes people aren't writing as deliberately as they should. 
not yeah. as conscientiously as they should. Yeah. Um, the second is that if one thinks that philosophy is really a, a set of discursive acts, like I do, if you want to get at it, if you want to crack it open and make it know itself and be available to itself so it can be more conscientious, you can do that in a kind of theoretical way. You can study it historically. You know, what are the forms philosophy has taken? You can kind of stipulate what it is, um, try to define it. But I kind of wanted to get inside the actual act. And if I were, and, and pose the question, if I were going to write philosophy, what would I take into account? You know, because that's what we do with acts. We deliberate. Mm. If you're inside an act, you're going to be inside a set of deliberations about what is it that I should do. So I kind of wanted the act of writing philosophy to be opened up by me taking this deliberative stance toward it, which is why I ended up thinking about it as a praxis and why I ended up relying a little bit on uh, Aristotle and why I wanted to say praxis and not techne. Um, you know, there's still historical things going on. There's still all kinds of conceptual work being done, but I wanted to write the book from the stance of, how should I write philosophy and make that into a question of deliberation? But it dawned on me, as I say, I wasn't really sure what to ask. <laughs> you know, it wasn't clear to me what was relevant and what wasn't. I didn't know quite how to deliberate. So part of the book is to provide this kind of deliberative frame. Or I think, since I also view it kind of as a book in ethics, this uh, exploration of what it would mean to be conscientious as a philosophical writer. And I really press three basic questions. Um, and that is, you know, when you deliberate about how to write, think about how the genres you choose and the logical rhetorical operations you include or exclude, how they're going to impact your thought as it unfolds. Because your thought will be led differently if you go for the professional article, the essay, uh, the aphorism, the dialogue so on and so forth. Or if you employ irony, do you use examples? Don't you? Do you quote? How do you quote? How do you engage? Is it polemical? Is it something else? So the first thing is just to take up a genre or a logical rhetorical act, uh, operation is to uh, commit yourself to a kind of journey that you're not going to be fully in control of. The second is you'll be establishing different relations with different addressees. Um, and to be conscientious or deliberate in that regard is to think, well, what relation am I taking toward addressees if I behave polemically? Um, and there, you know, the weird way for me in which the polemic is this sort of address to true believers, it's not even really designed to make someone change their mind because it's usually such a thin reading. No one who identified with the author being polemicized would think, oh, good point. Now I'll change my mind. It's more of a gesture of exile um, and a way of letting your followers know, don't be siding with this person or you're against me. Um, so all of these, again, genres, logical rhetorical operations, I think they create differential relations with addressees. And then lastly, and this is kind of nebulous, I'm not happy with how I developed this, but authors and readers meet in different historical moments. And so, again, genre, logical, rhetorical operations, these may resound differently depending on where you are 
I remember talking with someone about footnotes. I made a mention of this in the book. And they really wanted foot, to not have footnotes. They thought it was a, a burdensome scholarly weight to their prose. But I pushed back and said, man, we're in this time now where everyone thinks, you know, is not everyone, but lots of people are hostile to expert level discourse. And the, the idea that thoughts have long histories and histories of disagreement and that to actually work your way into a complex matter requires a lot of work. I think footnotes remind us of that. And so texts which want to abandon footnotes altogether, I'm a little suspicious of. That's more of a of a American proselytizing <laughs> uh, prophetic type voice that for me can risk uh, an anti-philosophical stance because it doesn't feel like it needs to justify itself uh, to people who are as learned uh, as the speaker is. So those are the deliberate philosophy of those three uh, deliberate writing uh, considers those three things. What happens to my thought and it's unfolding? What relation am I establishing with my address A? And what will the currency of this be in this historical moment? And I want currency to be a pun in the Emersonian sense um, where he uses conduct in this way. Conduct is both action, but it's also, right, it transmits something. And so currency is what kind of charge will it bring to that moment, but also how will it flow in a moment? So those are sort of the three most um, most obvious ways in which those are the questions one would ask if one wanted to write deliberately. Um, but part of it also is just the sense, a call to being more conscientious and, you know, living out the know thyself commitment in terms of writing, which, you know, ebbs and flows depending on where we are in the historical moment. Yeah, and is does that get at what you were asking? Absolutely, and I think okay. also really nicely performs the the way that so many of the recurring concepts of the books of the book is, are operating at those multiple levels. That they you sometimes have a conceptual point you want to make, but there's also a practical point that you're making. Um, so that, that deliberate writing is a call to write deliberately, as well as um, those three points you wanted to make. Can uh, I throw one more thing onto that? Yeah, because I'm so glad that you. I mean, uh, I always try to pack too much into whatever <laughs> I write, and it's it's really interesting then to the degree they get picked up at all. And and I can't tell you how nice it is to uh, talk with someone who's thought carefully about something once written. It's a uh, uh, completely cheering. The part of what I'm trying to do in this book is I just want to refuse the idea that writing is either performative or declarative or um, that one either has a doctrine or one doesn't have a doctrine um, that one either argues or figures. Um, I just, you know, all of these ways in which an opposition is set up so one can valorize one side and abandon the other. Mm. Um, I'm not against these oppositions, but they're continua for me. Um, they sort of dialectically involve one another. So if you ever choose one side of an opposition, basic philosophical commitment of mine, you haven't understood what an opposition is. Um, but for me, I wanted the book to both argue for things, make conceptual points. So be demonstrative in that sense, demonstrate the plausibility and desirability of certain commitments. Um, I wanted it to be provocative, to start thought, you know, to generate thought in others, uh, thought that might both be inspired by, but also contest and resist what I'm saying. 
Uh, and lastly, I wanted it to exemplify. I wanted it to be uh, a kind of work which exemplified philosophy or the way I put it sometimes stands as an image of philosophy as a way of inhabiting discursive communities or inhabiting histories. Uh, and all three of those are equally important to me. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't actually think you can avoid doing all three, but I really wanted mm. to somehow take on all three without always underscoring that's what I was about. Um, so I'm so glad that you, you know, caught like, oh, wow, this is, you know, making a performative point and is also declaring something to be the case or making an assertoric claim. Yeah, no, it, it even strikes me now as we're talking, I hadn't thought about this before, but the um, even the way that you constructed your footnotes, um, I think does that. I, and I don't often ask interviewees about how they constructed their footnotes, but um, do you mind just talking a little bit about the structure of the footnotes for the book? I, one thing I was struck by is that they're continuous for the book. Yeah. So um, after deciding I did want footnotes uh, and I didn't want footnotes just to be where I settle my scholarly debts. Mm, I know lots mm -hmm. of people and, and I've probably done this myself who write something and then read the secondary literature <laughs> and distribute it through the footnotes, um, kind of cover their, cover their ass about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, one of the footnotes I put in, I think I put in a footnote about footnotes, which says sometimes thought just won't quit. <laughs> uh, and you know that this is not essential to your argument, but you're just like, oh, I got this idea. I got to still get it out. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wanted the footnotes to give the sense of thought spilling beyond itself. That would be the first person sense of it, but also in the second person sense of it to have it be a site where you're like, wow, there are a lot of conversations swirling here. Um, and John can't even possibly acknowledge or do justice to all of those, but they'll, you know, the, in a sense, the, the footnote will be a little trap door in the paragraph when all of a sudden one drops into a much broader conversation. Right. Um, yeah. And then that's also just an acknowledgement of the deep historicity of thought, um, which is something that's always put me into, even though I'm an Emerson scholar on the one hand, not really being a historian, how is it, you know, this used to be one of the things that divided so-called analytic and continental philosophy um, is how, you know, you know, does one or doesn't one, you know, uh, read the history of philosophy as a, a site of living insight. Uh, and I'd rather just think historically while still having a voice of my own uh, making claims. Um, and I was hoping that the footnotes are a way uh, of trying to even deepen that sense of no one speaks except in a conversation. No one speaks except as a response and what that conversation is and what they're responding to has a deep, long history, which no one can really do justice to. Um, that's always more. And, you know, there's always more to discover. You know, I'm sure if I went to all of my footnotes, I could find essays to write that are implicated there but which I haven't even begun to do. I mean, that sense of the deadedness of thought uh, is crucial to me. Yeah, I, I feel like what we should do is take that, what you just said, take that little sound clip and give it to everybody writing a dissertation. And say, <laughs> you, there's a hook you're going to have to let yourself off of, but conscientiously, right? Like, 
you're not totally off the hook, but there's a way in which you could not be, um, you could not show your gratitude and indebtedness in anything you write as thoroughly as this, the burden of this history is going to make you feel as you're trying to craft a, a dissertation. Yeah. And I think people bury that partly because there's social capital and pretending you're more unique than you are. Oh. Um, but also, you know, it's vulnerable. Mm. I mean, one of the tones I was trying to hit in the book was that it's that I'm being vulnerable. Um, you know, I'm not resolving. I'm not giving the final word. Things are un- everything's under argued. I wanted to be smart and thoughtful, but thoughtful is not the same as definitive. <laughs> you know, yeah. thoughtful is something that's a contribution to a, a conversation. It's not telling your reader you could do a lot of work and in the end you'll agree with me, which I often feel when I read philosophy there, people are trying to convince me that this has been resolved and they've, they've done my share of the work. They're trying to, in a sense, take my place uh, in the process of thought. And, and I just, at a very basic level, bristle at that. That's back to the punk side. Like, well, and it's also, I mean, an attempt to shut down vulnerability, right? Like maybe you're about to do something with what I, have written down that I would not have foreseen or, or said was okay. Right. Like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But vulnerability is wonderful in that way. It's generative. Right. Right. You know, it means I can grow or I can be wounded or both. Right. But self-possessed is not. Yeah. That's another, you know, if there's a target, another target of of the book is the idea to try to write in a tone of self-possession. Um, I want to be very conscientious, but not self-possessed. I want the book to have a feeling of lib- of being liberated in a certain sense, but not because the author is autonomous. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I, yeah, and I just—it's interesting. I, this book ne- negotiates a question about what is philosophy, and I—I I thought about it a lot about that. You were able to write this book. I wonder if, in part, because the stakes of that vulnerability. Um, you can take them up in a way that people are going to say, are still going to acknowledge this as a book of philosophy. If this makes sense, the way I'm asking this question. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Because you turn from what is philosophy to should I write this way? And you you transform that question, I think, in in one of the sections in Pardon the Interruption, which is also just such a great title for for a section (laughs) in in your own book, right? Yeah. 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 So, so do you mind talking about, I, it, it's not a well-formed question now. I had a really nicely formed question and then we got on this about vulnerability and, but it seems like it's, it's connecting to what you were thinking. Yeah. So the, um, the way you posed it now, I heard uh, something of uh, an acknowledgement of um, degrees of vulnerability that accompany the willingness to be vulnerable in prose. Um, so part of that having to do with the social standing of the author, say, or mm-hmm. their professional stability. Right. Um, and, you know, I was already uh, uh, tenured. I was already full professor. Um, I'm uh, at a research university, uh, depending on your orientation, a very good one or a boring one. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I remember the uh, someone uh, you know, in talking about other PhD programs, uh, declared in, in, in the blogosphere that, uh, Emory had gone to shit. 
<laughs> and I, my reply was, I thought we were the shit, you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't win there. Anyway, the right. point being like, yeah, I was at a point in my career where it was easier to write this book. I even told the editor uh, that I was working with, I was a little disappointed in myself that it had taken this long to write it. And she more or less said, like, if you had written any earlier, no one would have published it, mm. even if it were the exact same book. Um, so there is uh, one of the things to acknowledge in the sort of synchronic and diachronic webs that uh, surround and infuse philosophy uh, are institutional uh, variables of uh, power. Um, and that's certainly uh, partially operative. I try to acknowledge and engage that in all kinds of different ways um, mm -hmm. going through. Uh, and that those do influence questions of, um, but is this philosophy, right? That question, which has received a lot of attention in the last five years or so, how is this philosophy? Um, and there's a way in which this book will be recognized as philosophy. I wonder, you know, I, I, I think it part depends on uh, who one asks. Um, but to the degree it is, you know, I wonder what allows that to be the case and how much that has to do with the fact that by the time the book came out, I'd had a name chair and I was at a research university. Um Whereas if it said, uh, if you had changed the ethnicity of my name and put me in a cultural studies program and kept the same title and all the same sentences, um, how that would be received. Uh, so that field is there. Um, for me, um, even within philosophy, the thought that one knows ahead of time whether a text is philosophy or not uh, is a kind of hubris. People take Nietzsche to be a philosopher now. You know, his peers did not take him to be a philosopher. The reviews at the time really pushed it much more towards poetry. Um, you know, it's just the texts are exciting, so some people decided to keep reading it um, and reading it in ways where they would translate it into more uh, prototypical philosophical prose, depending on the lineage they put themselves in. You know, is Montaigne a philosopher? Uh, I don't know. Um, you know, these when we look historically, the reason things settled as or didn't settle as philosophy uh, aren't simply facts about those texts. And so whether X counts as uh, philosophy, and I'm thinking, I mean, I uh, read up a little on your work, <laughs> and you look back retrospectively, I think those are open-ended questions. Um, part of the question is, can I receive this in a way which maintains a certain degree of continuity with the other texts that I'm reading? And so there's a way in which, but is this philosophy is in part dependent on, uh, you know, what readers are able to do with it. Uh, for me, I, yeah, I didn't want to, how should we write philosophy if the idea was, hey, let's figure out what philosophy is first. That's always going to be question begging to me. You'll proceed by examples um, that will favor your conclusion or you'll stipulate and that's just cheating. Uh, so uh, part of that early shift is to say, wow, philosophy has really yet to be decided what its forms of presentation are. And now we're back at that Emerson epigraph that you picked up on. Um, this is not a settled affair. Uh, and I don't view it as a set. And I wanted to experiment in ways to say maybe there are some other options. Um, and 
but you know that could also be a retrospective matter. You know, if people start hearing as philosophically charged and relevant certain modes of presentation, one might look back and see other texts as more uh, congruous with philosophy, as in uh, having more rapport with what we take philosophy to be than historically has been acknowledged. Am I on? Am I on topic here? Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and this question of should I write this way, also being caught up with um, with being able to look back and think, oh, somebody's doing something in this text. They wrote this thing, or this thing got written for them. And that's my interest is in when people have things written for them when they can't write themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah, like autobiographies and things. Mm-hmm, yeah, when somebody has to to dictate um, their thinking, right? And yeah. so this question of of should I write this way in conversation with this whole like how we even got these texts that are available to us to be in conversation with? Yeah, um, that's yeah, that's great. And this is why I actually, I mean, I know the resistance to if someone at a conference hears a paper and says, "How is that philosophy?" That that's uh, often heard uh, rightfully as a dismissive gesture. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, though, the question is in a broader way uh, and, and in an appropriate context with an appropriate tone, a good question for exactly the kind of example you just talked about. How do I receive this philosophy when um, I'll just, use, you know, things that were part of my education as an undergrad? I want to think about native thought and I read Black Elk Speaks mm-hmm. um, or I read about the Crow through uh, members of, of the Crow tribe in the early 20th century talking about their experiences to anthropologists who then report it and organize it. You know, to how the thought is structured, the form of presentation is often so integral to the philosophy for me that there's another way in which how is this philosophy is an important generative question if you really want to hear what's happening in the text before one. Um, and I think one then has to ask those questions. Uh, otherwise, it all just kind of reduces to propositional content and the form of presentation becomes irrelevant. Um, and, and that's just naive to me. Um, that's right. not conscientious enough. Right. But it, it does strike me how much tone matters about the, oh, the way that you're, yeah, you're, reinvigorating the how is this philosophy it's asked as a um a desire for a conversation yeah and to really hear as opposed to saying i kind of wanted you to know how strange you sound here and i have have the power right yeah and i'm keeping this gate yeah i remember once giving a talk and it was it was about what does it really mean uh to be historical um uh, to sort of be historically conscientious. And part of it had to do with Benjamin and uh, bridges and in, inhabiting a history of disaster and, you know, other modes of historical consciousness, which didn't allow historical violences to appear. And afterwards, a guy comes up to me and he says, oh, man, you know, you had me thinking about my childhood and, you know, really generated a lot of thoughts. Pause. But of course, that wasn't philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and so I just said, I go, so is that the mark of philosophy? It doesn't make you think about your childhood? Like, you know, it takes to make you think about your childhood more than uh, than the pass uh, or, you know, the no-haul pass being distributed there. 
So I completely appreciate and respect the rejection of the question uh, in the context in which it's being rejected. Um, but there are other contexts where I think it's it's difficult if you really want to do justice to a text. You have to ask yourself, wh- how is the philosophy happening here? Um, and to be able to be a sophisticated receiver and interlocutor with it. Well, and so so perhaps you've just answered this, but um, citation is so important um, to this text. And you talk about citation and citation practices. Will you just maybe connect it explicitly, what you were just saying to citation practices and what you think is at stake and how and how citations are developed in a text? Yeah, so for me, it's, it's both citations and then the quality of the engagements. Um, who does one cite and when one has an interlocutor, are you showing the same energy and sophistication uh, with uh, all of your uh, interlocutors or some just being mentioned because it's virtue signaling. Um, So that's kind of, you know, just part of the, you know, how real is this? But I do think, and I was really slow, as I say uh, in the book, uh, and as you note in your question, to really appreciate this at a level of concrete life. Um, that if you only cite men or only cite white guys, uh, you know, only cite white folk, um, then you're, you're signaling to your readers who you think really counts, who's at the heart of the conversation. Uh, and this is a way of making readers feel more or less welcome. Now, I don't hold the view, which I sometimes hear, that say, because Kant's a racist, that therefore uh, uh, certain people of color are formally excluded from being readers of his texts. I don't think any author has that kind of power over their own address. Um, But there's still a strong set of perlocutionary forces. So I don't think uh, citation has this sort of irlocutionary force which can declare who can be and who isn't a member uh, of the community. But it certainly has strong... Uh, perlocutionary forces, particularly uh, in undergraduate classes and in graduate school. And it makes certain people feel very unwelcome. It makes them swim greatly upstream in order to be able to see themselves as belonging. Uh, And it also signals to other people who seem to be included in the class of those being cited. It tells them, who do you have to worry about and take seriously? You know, when I was an undergraduate, Beauvoir just was not part of the philosophical scene. You didn't run into her. And so you didn't think to read her. Um, And and that's partly, you know, the force of citations is, so let's go back to my point about the footnotes. The trapdoor opens and a broad conversation is acknowledged. Um, The breadth of that conversation is completely constrained uh, and artificially and violently constrained if there are uh, participants who are being excluded, uh, not necessarily for the reason of the class to which they belong, but are nevertheless absent as a class. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I, I kind of think, you know, the moment in Souls of uh, Black Folk, Du Bois says he encountered the color line at school when um, – a student refused his calling card. And that was a way of saying, you're not welcome in my home, right? Because if you accept someone's calling card in the late 19th century, 
Uh, it means when you come to my home and present your card, the person who guards the door for me will see that your card has already been accepted and you'll be welcomed in. So it's this way of saying you're not welcome in my house. Uh, and I think the refusal of inclusive citation is something like if you take those articles uh, by people in underrepresented groups to be like calling cards, it's a refusal of those cards. And it's a way of saying you're not welcome uh, in my house. So I really view this as, as a kind of degree of establishing a climate of, of welcomeness and hospitality or of, of contrary terms of, of uh, unwelcomeness and hostility. Um, and it was, so that's interesting given I, where I wanted to go next, which was um, when you address the reader at this point, you say we proceed on your authority. And I want to talk about your use of authority there, but it's interesting in light of what you were just saying about um, sort of the discursive community that you set up through citations and the, the welcome or unwelcome. Um, because there's a way in which you're saying there's um, the citations are setting up sort of the bounds of who's in the conversation and who's allowed in. Um, but then there's this, I think, really great um, acknowledgement that you make. We proceed on your authority. There's a way in which the reader um, is also going to bring to the text um, uh, a discursive community in a, in a certain welcome or not welcome <laughs> Um, who's sure. welcome and who's not. Um, so will you, will you, I think, then talk about this other side of that, um, about this, the reader's authority. We proceed on your authority. Yeah. Is it okay if I read the whole little? Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. Bit? Yeah. Yeah. So the great. section is entitled Bear With Me. <laughs> right. Uh, and I'm trying to do the pun on the bear, uh, which mm -hmm. is please endure whatever it is <laughs> uh, I'm about to throw at you, but also in, in the generative sense. You know, I, I'm. This is part of the me and you. I'm hoping that together through this in his action, something will emerge, which would not have emerged if we had been left to our own devices. So it says, "Bear with me." I rarely feel as if extant debates allow me to situate myself. So permit me a different course, or forgive me. Parentheses, or just stop listening. We proceed on your authority. So part of what I'm trying to do is just acknowledging that this book is not customary uh, and it's asking uh, extra things of readers than they usually are asked when approaching uh, a philosophy book from a university press. Uh, and I wanted that to be uh, explicit, um, but I also wanted to suggest that my ability to be that kind of author requires a certain kind of reader. It requires a certain kind of uptake, and the reader can refuse. Um, so for me to be the kind of author I want to be, I need the authorization of the reader. I can't make them meet me in a text that might, in a way that might be generative. Because um, there's a kind of greed to my book, which is in that, you know, to you and me, that I want us to meet here where thought happens. Um, and whether the, you know the reader has some authority over whether or not they will be party to that mm. uh, dynamic. Um, so part of the authority is is some pun on me being an author as well. That for me to be a certain kind of author, I need the authorization 
uh, of of the reader. I also, in a more general way, I have this kind of like Foucault. I think people are freer than they feel, and that power often operates through obedience. Those are like two kind of pet phrases for me. Hmm. Um, and uh, the that the reader has a fair amount of control in many circumstances, not in all circumstances, over how they're going to take up a text. And so I wanted that, you know, that section is the bear with me is trying to, it's one of the ways I try to open up the, the I speaking to a you and to really try to mark and open up that space as something just not in my control. Um. And, and I don't have say over how it will be taken up and whether it will be accepted, engaged, refused, refuted. Um, you know, there's this whole, that whole sense that uh, Osip Mamostam uses and Paul Ceylon uses of the poem as a message in a bottle, mm-hmm. which I think is such a great image of writing, you know, that there's, you know, this dependency upon vulnerability before and really the space that's there for a reader to proceed as he or she, as they see fit. Um, that's partly what I was trying to, uh, to mark. Uh, and it's also a way of trying to make my authority rest on what I'm able to provide rather than my name on the back of the book. It's not denying that that's the case, right. but it's sort of saying, if you're going to hear me like I want to be heard, I'm going to hopefully have earned it through what I've provided here. And it it seems to circle back around to the question of deliberate writing as well, um, about how to conscientiously take up a text if one is going to write about it. Um, I, I'm thinking about the part where you are talking about, for instance, how Habermas talks about Foucault. Um, and there's a sort of, I think you're, you're saying there's a lack of conscientiousness um, in the way that Habermas takes up, not just Foucault, but. Um, yeah, or it's Heidegger. It's the, yeah. Was it Heidegger read, there? Yeah, it's the reading of Heidegger. Um, okay. The Foucault thing is also, um, he at least gives him two essays for the beatdown. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Rather than just one in philosophical discourse of modernity. Okay. But um, yeah, so, it, but this is, it seems like part of what you're saying is the authority the authority of the reader there can turn into the authority of the writer. And there's a, there's an ethical burden on the writer to, to be a good reader. I mean, this is, that's a simplistic way of putting it, but. Um, yeah. But that, I mean, that's, that's certainly uh, for me, the larger issue is uh, Emerson has this line that our, our character is publishing itself ceaselessly. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's, you know, I think that's true in philosophical writing. Your philosophical character is uh, uh, publishing itself. And I think, because I think in the long run, almost all philosophical positions are refuted and revised, that the legacy of a thinker is more the example they set than any particular doctrine. It can't be separated from their doctrines because it's the example they set while articulating what they believe in. But nevertheless, the example is a is really a a vital part of what a philosopher is presenting in writing philosophy. And I always, I you know, I 
grade lots of students and they quote someone in order to quickly refute them. And I accuse them, I partly jokingly, I'm like, part of the logic of this essay is ritualistic murder. (laughs) Because you've only brought this person in to kill them. You don't want to learn from them. You're not going to allow them to contest what you have to say. You just pronounce the sentence that they're, they are now done with. Their thought is over. The life of this thought is over. Let's move on. And there's something politically vicious about that. Um, and, you know, and now we hear it like radiating at 4,000 decibels, you know, wherever we turn uh, in the contemporary arena. But I think we're partly philosophically party to that to the degree we're not exemplifying the community we want to see uh, when we engage other uh, other texts. And that also has to do like, don't, we shouldn't be afraid to be enthusiasts on behalf of texts. Um, and that means to take their thought and see where it leads. Doesn't have to be particular, you know, I sometimes tell my students and myself, you know, Critical really just means I'm going to say something transformative about this. It could be affirmative. It could be negative. Um, But I don't have to make my philosophical name um, by, you know, establishing a pile of bodies of the defeated enemies. This is you. That description makes me want to talk about blogs now. Okay. <laughs> <the> fraud. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so you see this real potential in blogs, um, and I think given what you just said, right? There's, there's that problem with blogs, um, especially with comments. Um, so will you talk about it, yeah. the potential you see, and then maybe a little bit about how those sort of ritualistic, symbolic murder happens in blogs? Yeah, boy, the the comments thing. I mean, I think that was one of the dreams is we could, people could, we could actually create these dialogues. Um, and I'm not fully uh, literate with the terms, uh, but I take it that the trolls come in, saturate it with negativity and abuse, and then everyone flees. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, different packs of dogs and uh, one other pack comes and pees on our food supply or something. Uh, and those are completely dispiriting. Uh, I do think what I like about the idea of blogs, uh, is that because I like the essay and the essay acknowledges that thought is occasional, um, which means something like this caught my attention. I'm now going to objectify that attention in prose. Uh, and that means I'll expand it. I'll develop it some, uh, maybe we'll contest it. But there will be right the sort of event of attention that uh, was produced by being caught by this phenomenon. Here it is. And I think blogs would be great that way um, and often are great. Uh, and I think they should be concentrated as well. Uh, I recently did one at 800 words, at 1,300 words. And they're very challenging, but there's something good about that length. It's also we're just acknowledging where our readers are and how much time they have. And you want to, you know, the, the idea is give them something that they can get through, but that will stay with them after they leave. That strikes me of what uh, a blog is good for. It's almost like a short letter, if that makes some sense. Um, I find, though, that blogs are often very casual. And I think they should be even more sculpted. <laughs> uh, they shouldn't be so, if informal means lazy, 
uh, that's that's not so useful to me. Um, Thoreau has this line where he says he doesn't want to record an impression but leave an impression, <laughs> and I think that would could be a good uh, sense of what uh, a blog uh, should try to do. I do think it's difficult because philosophy aims to be reflexive and self-critical to not just account for why it believes something, but to account for the terms which orient how we decide what we believe. And those really short units, it's very difficult. I think sometimes for me, at least to feel like I'm being the philosopher I aspire to be. It's not impossible, but I think there's something there. Uh, the, I kind of make fun of this in the book where I have a line that says, short is sweet, but then I ask, but are my thoughts confections? <laughs> so I realize I'm in tension with myself here. Uh, I don't mean completely short, but you know, whatever it is, so someone gets done and it's like, wow, okay, I got some things to think about. Um, about the kinds of things that wouldn't normally maybe make it into a journal article. So let me give you one quick example. Um, you know, I'm troubled not just by the content of uh, the president's tweets, but by the fact that he only communicates through tweets. Um, he's never puts himself in a position of answerability to the people he is, you know, governing. All he does is make declarations. And so I sometimes think Twitter to Trump is like the radio to the emergence of national socialism not at the level of content, but just the idea that I am the voice of authority who is not answerable to you. You are answerable to me. Um, and I think that would make a great blog, just sort of about the formal pragmatics of the tweet uh, and what their perlocutionary effects might be. Um, you know, but again, I just think, you know, the, the problem is I think people want to write blogs uh, as non-academic and I get that in a move towards accessibility, but I guess for me, the question of accessibility is an even more difficult task for a writer. It shouldn't be the easier thing. <laughs> We've all been trained in the more professional way. It's how do I keep the energy of philosophy alive in a short, accessible presentation? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I admire it when so I see hard. it. Yeah. When it's yeah. done well. And you have this, so there's an openness to it and you're in the conversation with the person, yeah. but they have not let down on the thinking, on the reflexivity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 And it's, it's hard. I don't, uh, I like it. I mean, it's a fun challenge. It's not unlike the challenge I said in the book to keep the thing short. Um, right. But the truth of the matter is most of the sections I wrote were much longer and then I condensed them. <laughs> well, this is that that Mark Twain quote, right? I would have written a shorter le letter if I had more time. Yeah, <laughs> right? that awesome. like condensation yeah. does take like a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. It's like okay, how much of this is actually useful? What yeah. do I really have yeah. to offer here? And that takes time, and you have to realize. I was in a band when I was a, a younger man, and you know, the first thirty songs you write, you think these are great. <laughs> And then the next 30 songs you write, you keep three, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I sort of think, you know, thought expands and then it needs to trim itself and prune itself um, and then hand something over. Uh, I've been attracted to doing something like a blog, but then yeah, I just fear that I'm not going to be able to do that in a way that maintains the integrity of the thought. I don't want to say quality because I don't think I don't have some abstract measure 
It just means that the thought maintains its integrity and its presentation. I don't want to just dash something off because I'm a, what was it, deadline poet? I can't even remember who described themselves that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, well, before I let you go, will you tell us what you're working on now? Uh, sure. Um, the uh, So I had three sorts of things. The first is <laughs> now having written a book in this style that's partly about the style, I, I feel like if I if there's a kind of a call to action, <laughs> I need to now write a book in the style that's about something other than the style. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I've been experimenting with writing some essays and I wrote one on hope that is, you know, more or less the same sort of structure, uh, structure, non-structure at about 15,000 words. And I thought that's the right length. Cause if I go on anymore, no one will care. Um, and I want to do one on hope, trust, and forgiveness. Uh, because those are, I'm calling it virtues for a fragile life, although the degree to which their virtues is complicated. But the idea is these are capacities we should cultivate because we're dependent, vulnerable beings who err. Um, and these are sort of the virtues of finitude as opposed to like the virtues of self-mastery. Um, and if we lost any of these uh our lives would just train wreck. If we really lost hope and fell into despair, if we were incapable of trust or unable to forgive one another, um, the trapdoor that opened there would, would just be terrifying. Um, and so I want to have three, and I also think all three of them interact uh, in certain ways, but not in ways that I would want to render systematic through like an overall theory um, I'd rather be more essayistic about it. So that's one. The hope part's done. I'm on leave this year. I'm going to work on the honesty. I mean, the trust and forgiveness. I flirted with honesty as one of them. <laughs> um, and that'll come in somehow, but I don't, uh, um, I sort of like the trust of the present, uh, hope of the future and forgiveness of the past. That sort of helped me talk about different things. So we'll see how that goes. I'm, uh, there's a lot of writing around each of those topics. And I think the 15,000 words on hope took me like two years. <laughs> um, so we'll see, you know, I don't know when that'll be done and ultimately what, what form it will take. Uh, I also have this journal circles that I've just started with Rick Lee and DePaul. And it's partly organized uh, in order to allow people to be more experimental with their writing or even with their topic. So our sort of tagline for it is, if there's something you've been dying to write, but you thought no journal would really take something like that, you're wrong. Because <laughs> there's now a journal that wants exactly that. <clears throat> um, and we sort of have the first four issues mapped out uh, in terms of invited submissions. They'll still be reviewed and the like. But in order to sort of demonstrate to people the wide range of things we're interested in, um, but we're really hoping then that that will draw uh, and prompt, you know, some more experimental submissions. It'll still be a standard journal, be peer reviewed. Everything will be online. You can download the PDFs. The authors retain all of the copyright. You know, it really takes advantage of uh, um, the digital uh, world. 
so we don't have to pay for presses and all those other sorts of things. So that's another thing that I think is going to take up. And the last thing is I, I do a bunch of work with my brother, Paul Isager, who's a clinical psychologist on the nature of schizophrenia. And that's an ongoing uh, project where our commitment is to understand the first person dimensions hmm. of schizophrenia, their clinical relevance, uh, and also their theoretical relevance, because, um, you know, we don't think that having schizophrenia is like having some bacteria and you just take medicine and it goes away. Uh, it's too profound a disruption in how people are able to relate to themselves in the course of their life. And so we have a whole elaborate theory we've been developing for 15 or so, 20 years. Um, and that's kind of just an ongoing project always. Um, and has that, has that fed the hope, trust, and forgiveness work? Very indirectly. Yeah. Um, the I try, I really only work on the topic as part of this interdisciplinary team in order to respect the ah. complexity of it. And I, I was really, when I started to work on this, it just was a real shift for me. Because at certain moments when I was, say, working on the nature of art, sometimes you think, I will try to make, this thesis is a little radical, but I'm going to see if I can get away with it. You know, you get to be conceptually ambitious and then you backfill. And when you start talking about other people mm -hmm. <laughs> and their lives and you're expecting clinical uptake, uh, it's completely humbling. Totally. And uh, you sort of go in the reverse. Yeah. Which is we really want to be. But I will say that is one of my, my senses of how a life can be, have its hope ripped out from it and what it's like to try to endure that. <clears throat> working on mental illness has certainly provided me with, uh, made me frustrated with people who are glib about the idea of hope and what it means to give up on it. Mm -hmm. You know, as a sort of like tough guy pose, I'm beyond hope. Um, I think if you follow them around, that's incredibly unlikely. Mm. Yeah. So those are the, those I'm all over the place still. No, it's great. It's great. Yeah. I look forward to all those projects. Well, um, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, this was such a pleasure. And again, the questions were so uh, thoughtful. Um, the uh, It's, you know, incredibly cheering and stimulating to be given this opportunity. So you've really honored me. Thank you very well, much. Well, I appreciate it. I'm so glad I got to have this conversation with you. <laughs> <laughs>